When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Tonight on The Readout. I make decisions in this office based on the facts and the law. Um, the law is completely nonpartisan. That's how decisions are made in every case. We look at the facts, we look at the law, and we bring charges. That was Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis last month when she indicted Donald Trump and 18 others. And today, she released a blistering response to House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan's decision to investigate her investigation. Also tonight, the libraries of 13 former presidents, Republican and Democrat, issue an unprecedented warning about the state of U.S. democracy as we see an uptick in violent rhetoric from politicians on the right. Plus, Colorado voters file a lawsuit to keep Trump off the ballot, raising the question, can the 14th Amendment truly bar him from becoming president again? Good evening, I'm Jonathan Capehart, in for Joy Reid. We begin tonight with a slew of legal developments today on multiple fronts, all involving the many criminal cases of Donald Trump and his associates, starting with Peter Navarro, a former advisor in the Trump White House who just a short time ago was found guilty by a D.C. jury on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to comply with a subpoena from the House January 6th Select Committee last year. In their closing arguments, prosecutors told jurors that Navarro, quote, thinks he's above the law. And in this country, nobody is above the law. In that same building, the grand jury that indicted Trump for election interference met today for the first time since handing up those charges more than four weeks ago, an indication that their investigation is ongoing, which could potentially spell bad news for the six unnamed co-conspirators listed in that indictment. Meanwhile, in Georgia, attorneys for Trump today notified the judge presiding over his criminal racketeering case that he may seek to move his state case to federal court, something several of his co-defendants are also asking for, though the judge has yet to issue a ruling. And Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is proving once again that she is not to be messed with, issuing a scathing rebuke to Republican House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan after he demanded that the DA hand over a series of documents related to her indictment of Trump. In her response, Willis did not hold back, accusing Congressman Jordan of overstepping his congressional authority and obstructing her prosecution, writing in part, your job description as a legislator does not include criminal law enforcement, nor does it include supervising a specific criminal trial because you believe that doing so will promote your partisan political objectives. She goes on to say, your letter makes clear that you lack a basic understanding of the law, its practice, and the ethical obligations of attorneys generally and prosecutors specifically. There's a lot happening here and here to discuss all of it. We have Somia Dayananda, former senior investigator on the House January 6th Select Committee, Renato Mariotti, 
former federal prosecutor and Hugo Lowell, political investigations reporter for The Guardian. Thank you all very much for coming to the readout. Somia, I'll start with you as someone who was part of the House Select Committee's investigation. What's your reaction to the Navarro verdict? Well, I think for those of us who served on the committee, it's another day of accountability. And it's also a day of affirming the committee's work. Um, you know, we had the congressional authority to investigate the facts and circumstances that led to January 6th. And as part of that, we interviewed close to a thousand witnesses. And the vast majority of them came in and cooperated with the committee. And if they were going to assert a privilege, they did so in front of a committee staffer. As part of our fact finding, Peter Navarro was identified as one of the key players who made efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So as part of the investigation, we had the authority to question him. We had the authority to subpoena him. And when he did not show up on that day, he was referred to the Department of Justice. So I think what viewers should be reassured by is that there was a process and that now it, by this verdict, we see that no one is above the law and that the common sense of D.C. jurors really held him accountable. And this is what we expect to see with additional trials in the future for uh, the former president and his allies. Mm -hmm. um, Renato, moving on to this brutal letter from Fannie Willis to Jim Jordan, she goes on to write that if Congress were to follow through on their threats to deny this office federal funds, you will be deciding to allow serial rapists to go unprosecuted, hate crimes to be unaddressed, and to cancel programs for at-risk children. She also listed a number of suggestions for pr productive activity by the Judiciary Committee. And she says that since Jordan seems to have a personal interest in her office, quote, you should consider directing the U.S. DOJ to investigate the racist threats that have come to my staff and me because of this investigation. Renato, your reaction to that blistering letter at nine pages long? Well, look, I, I will just say one thing about Fannie Willis. Uh, she has a very much take no prisoners uh, attitude. She's, she lays down the law. She sets hard lines. She's done that with Donald Trump. Uh, and now she's doing that with Jim Jordan. And I have to say, there's definitely an element here in which she's taking this a little personally. She is sick of all the attacks. She's sick of the way in which people are threatening her. And I get it. I, I was threatened myself when I was a prosecutor. I was in protective custody for a period of time. Uh, it is not a fun situation to be in. And so, you know, basically what she's telling Jim Jordan is she's calling him out on the fact that this is really a political game. You know, the United States Congress really has no role, as she points out, in regulating local law enforcement. His his supposed reason for you know investigating her is that he wants to see what's happening with federal funds. And her point is that, look, federal funds are being used to, to prosecute crimes. The fact that you don't like one person I'm prosecuting, the fact that you have a political agenda doesn't mean that I do. And that's exactly where she wants to be. I think that's exactly the sort of strong response that she needs. And frankly, she's calling his bluff. Right. I mean, this letter is very strong. And in fact, she throws his own words back at him. She writes, furthermore, your note calls to mind another letter recently submitted to a House Select Committee. Quote, this unprecedented action serves no legitimate le legislative purpose and would set a dangerous precedent for future Congresses. See letter from Congressman Jim Jordan to Chairman Benny Thompson dated January 9th, 2022. Somia, uh, I would love to get your reaction uh, to uh, D.A. Fonnie Willis's letter. 
I think it is incredibly well written and methodically refutes the so-called legitimacy of this Jim Jordan inquiry. I think the the ability for the DA, similar to Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, to really try to shut down this inquiry in this public manner by filing a nine page letter really also educates the uh, country as to what the purpose of a congressional committee should be. And you can juxtapose what Jim Jordan is doing with what the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack did. We had a legislative purpose and we followed that purpose. And Jim Jordan is certainly not doing that here. Mm -hmm. Hugo, let me bring you into the conversation. Congressional Republicans have made almost their entire agenda centered around playing Donald Trump's legal team and investigating the investigators. Do you think Bonnie Willis's letter will change anything or is Jim Jordan just going to double down? You know, I don't think it's, it's going to change anything. You know, what we should always remember is when congressional Republicans are going after these prosecutors, whether it's uh, Fannie Willis or whether it's Jack Smith, the special counsel, it's uh, in order to help Trump, right? Trump doesn't have a visibility into a lot of these, uh, the, the investigations, into the indictments, into what prosecutors are thinking. And so what he's effectively doing is getting the House Republican Conference and, and Jim Jordan to do his dirty work for him and to send letters and subpoenas and to try and get some sort of intel uh, from these prosecutors' offices to figure out kind of what's going on and what might, you know, come down the line. I think it was very notable that one of the letters that Jordan sent previously to Fannie Willis was uh, if she had had any contact with federal um, investigators in Jack Smith's office. And that, I think, is a telltale sign that Trump is really just trying to get intel. Mm. And Hugo, there's other news out of Georgia with Trump signaling today he might seek to move his Fulton County case to federal court, but he hasn't actually decided. What's the thought process of Trump's legal team here? Yeah, you know, I checked in with a couple of uh, Trump's lawyers uh, and people in his inner circle, and it seems to be that they are waiting for Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff, to, uh, to see whether or not he can get his case removed to federal court. And they want to see and use Meadows as like a guinea pig, as like a test balloon to see whether his arguments fly and how kind of a federal judge might react before they jump in and potentially file their mm. own removal motion themselves. I think to that end, the notice to the judge in uh, Fulton County today that he may soon file a removal motion is more aimed to the judge to say, look, before you decide anything more, uh, in, in the Fulton County case and whether or not you can have all these co-defendants tried together in October or, you know, if before you make any more deliberations, you should take into account that Trump at some point is going to remove his case to federal court. So then, Renato, what's the likelihood of this judge actually allowing Trump or any of his co-defendants to do that? I think it's very unlikely that Trump would be uh, allowed to remove his case. Mark Meadows has an uphill battle, but he has some things going for him in that uh, he had a, you know, he had a smaller role than Trump. Trump was the ringleader. And there were some elements of this RICO uh, enterprise that did involve some official acts. And so that's really what the judge is an Obama appointee, a good judge. What he's what he's really grappling with here. He doesn't have a lot of precedent. He's grappling with, well, if there's a small piece of this that was part of his official duties. Is that enough to support removal? I don't think ultimately at the end of the day, the judge is going to conclude that. But Meadows is making a calculated risk. And as Hugo said, Trump's team is sort of sitting on the sidelines, waiting to see if Meadows succeeds. If he risks, he wins his gamble, then Trump might be more willing to take a gamble mm -hmm. himself. 
Yeah, Somya, I'd love to get your reaction to the D.C. grand jury meeting again today. Jack Smith made it clear after the election interference charges were announced that the investigation would continue. Should the six unindicted co-conspirators be worried? Is there anyone else who should be worried? Look, there are a number of reasons that uh, grand juries reconvene in an ongoing investigation. It could be to hear additional evidence, um, whether that's against the former president or against the six co-conspirators. It could be to um, hear evidence for proposing new charges, and that could be against the former president or, again, against the six co-conspirators or other individuals. So whether a vote was taken is is key, um, but it could just have been a presentation of additional evidence. As Jackman said, the investigation is ongoing and that has to get in front of the grand jury. Renato, what do you think? I think that there's ultimately going to be an indictment of those co-conspirators, currently unindicted co-conspirators. It's going to take some time. Ultimately, what I see is Jack Smith sort of carefully streamlined in an indictment to get a very quick, uh, speedy trial of Donald Trump. It looks like he's going to get that uh, based on what Judge Shutkin did. And then I think to me, the question I'm asking, Jonathan, is what about Mark Meadows? He is conspicuously absent, even as an unindicted co-conspirator in that D.C. indictment. Uh, He was clearly written around. I think he's going to show up as a witness for Jack Smith in that case. Obviously, some complications given that he's indicted in Georgia. It's going to be very interesting to see how that shakes out. And Hugo, your, your thoughts? You know, I think uh, we've seen in previous cases, uh, grand juries reconvene after an indictment's been handed down. You know, we saw that uh, with with Manafort. We saw that in the classified documents case. And in the classified documents case, you know, we did get a superseding indictment. So it is very possible that there is a superseding indictment on its way uh, in the federal uh, January 6th case. And I think Renato hits a good point here that, you know, we don't know what Jack Smith wants to do with the other co-conspirators. But the fact that Trump was charged alone suggests that that was a move to get to trial quickly in his case. But it obviously doesn't preclude the fact that any of the unidentified uh, co-conspirators could also be charged. All right. Somya Dayananda, Renato Mariotti, Hugo Lowell, thank you all very much for coming to the readout tonight. Up next, in an unprecedented move, 13 presidential libraries have come together to deliver a warning about the precarious state of our democracy. But what is Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville concerned about? We've got people doing poems on aircraft carriers over the loudspeaker. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. 
That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future. With Donald Trump's legal problems mounting, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee recently claimed that the charges in four different cases against Trump are politically motivated by the Biden administration and predicted this dark future. If these tactics end up working to keep Trump from winning or even running in 2024, it is going to be the last American election that will be decided by ballots rather than bullets. That kind of allusion to violence in the wake of his prosecution and Trump's own calls for retribution is the kind of rhetoric that has spurred a coalition of presidential libraries from both parties to issue an unprecedented call to protect our democracy. 13 presidential centers and libraries representing presidents from Herbert Hoover to Barack Obama signed a joint statement. They write that civility and respect in political discourse, whether in an election year or otherwise, are essential. The statement doesn't mention anyone by name, but the numerous calls for civility and respect certainly apply to Donald Trump, who, as the 2024 Republican frontrunner, has made victimhood and retribution the center of his campaign. Contrast that with President Biden, who's running a campaign focused on his accomplishments while refusing to address Trump's indictments. But as Charles Blow writes in the New York, in New York Times, that dignified silence, silence doesn't work against Trump. Trump's legal problems aren't about parking tickets or child support payments. They're about an ongoing assault on our democracy. And it is hard to square having the candidate who is campaigning on protecting our democracy not address the great threat to that democracy. And that threat isn't simply about what has happened, but what could yet happen. Joining me now is Charles Blow, New York Times columnist and MSNBC political analyst, and David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic and former speechwriter and special assistant to President George W. Bush. Thank you both very much for coming to the readout, Charles. Trump's Republican opponents are also avoiding attacking him over his four indictments. Yesterday, in a speech in New Hampshire, his former vice president, Mike Pence, criticized not necessarily Trump, but the populism he inspired as, quote, road to ruin. What's the danger of his Republican and Democratic opponents both not going directly after his legal problems? Well, it creates a void. Uh, and people, you know, people are asking two things. Number one, do I believe what I'm hearing about him? And number two, even if I believe it, how much weight do I give to that? And because there is no one, uh, you know, opposing him who is giving weight to the charges, his in, his entire machine, including Fox News, uh, kind of minimizes it and paints him as a martyr and paints him as a victim. And you know, it, it just makes me very nervous. Because, you know, I'm here in Georgia in a in a swing state. And every time I hear people who would who I know would otherwise be sympathetic to the Democratic candidate or to Joe Biden, probably voted for him in the last election, repeating to me things that I know are part of conspiracy theories, a part of kind of uh, uh, an agenda of information that I know is coming from right to right. I'm always wondering, how did, how did that get to you, number one? And how do we hmm. undo this? whoever has the job of undoing it. And it's not, it, it doesn't seem to me like it would be an easy thing to undo because these are not necessarily people who are engaged with media all the time. They're really busy living their lives. They don't turn on MSNBC every day. They don't read the New York Times every day. They just get little bits of things that trickle down to them. And someone has to start standing up and saying, 
you know, this is a problem and it's coming from me and I am the opposition to this guy. Mm-hmm. David, I would love your your reaction. Yeah. Well, you you remember that President Biden did give a major speech about the state of democracy on the eve of the 2022 congressional elections. A speech was in Philadelphia. It was the one with the ominous red lighting. People may remember the right. image. Red and blue. Red, yes. Uh, and. The speech was intensely powerful because what it did was it goaded Donald Trump into intervening in the 2022 elections. Remember, the Republican strategy had been keep him off stage. This is not about Trump. Trump would not be contained after that speech. And I, I think there's a lot of evidence that uh, that Trump's reemergence did damage to Republican candidates and was one of the reasons they had such a disappointing election in 2022. People remember that Republicans did capture the House, but they forget the down-ballot down disaster. They lost four uh, state legislative chambers, something which hasn't happened to the out party since the Depression. Um, so there's a question of timing here. I mean, Charles is, is absolutely right about the mismatch between the political timing of the highly informed, highly attentive to politics and those who are less so. But the president of the United States speaks to those who are less so. And his timing has to match theirs. And that that time is not now. That time will come, but it is not now. I would love to get your thoughts on on Vice President Pence. Um, One, the the speech he gave, he doesn't name Trump, but we know he's talking about him. But this idea of populism versus conservatism, when the real danger is the threat to democracy, why not come right on out there and say that? Our democracy is at risk. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's there's a psychological thing going on here with my, former Vice President Pence, which is he he still wants to keep alive the hope that he's a real candidate for the presidency running in the Republican Party. And so he's saying as much as he can without completely abandoning that hope. And I think he would be happier in him, himself. He is, a, he is a devout man if he said, my role is not to be a candidate. My role is to be a witness. And, and Pence, at his best, speaks so powerfully, so effectively, so truthfully. And then the, the germ of ambition, which is Kindles, and I don't blame ambition, mm-hmm. but his is doomed. So, so give up the doomed ambition. Be the witness the eloquent witness that he can be at his most effective. You know, Charles, representatives from some of the 13 presidential centers who signed on to that joint letter uh, cited threats to election workers and January 6th as the impetus to sign on to it. I want you to listen to what Ron DeSantis had to say about Proud Boys sentenced to prison. There's other examples of people that probably did commit misconduct. They may have been violent. But to say it's an act of terrorism, 22 years, if other people that did other things got six months. So I think we need a single standard of justice. And so we'll use pardons and commutations as appropriate to ensure that everyone's treated equally. I mean, Charles, can we even pull back from the anti-democratic sentiment they're warning about when most of the Republican field seems to think trying to violently overthrow our democracy doesn't count as terrorism? The the entire thing is crazy. The idea that, you know, we want to make sure that everyone get get treated equally. The fact that everyone who stormed the Capitol went home and went to sleep in their own bed that night lets you know right away that everyone did not get treated equally. If that were a Black Lives Matter protests, they would not have gone home that night, number one. Number two, there would be more people on the, of, of the protesters who were killed that day than, than, than only a few or, or one or two, whatever it is, uh, the number is uh, of the protesters who were killed that day. That already told, tells you that people are not treated equally. Donald Trump would not have, it would not have taken three years of investigation to get to indictments. 
if if everyone was treated equally. He would not be able to tweet the things that he is tweeting and poisoning the jury pool if everyone was treated equally. The Justice Department is the, the not just department, the justice system is a joke when it comes to equal treatment because it does not treat people who are poor the same as it treats people who are rich and powerful. That is the biggest scandal here. And to try to flip that around to pretend that, that somehow these people are not being treated equally is ridiculous. Also, I just want to just dis- disagree. One thing that David said about timing, that we have to wait until, you know, to engage on this issue for Biden. Th- that's a big problem that people that I talk to here and, and people who are, you know, who have polled some of these people point to, particularly here in Georgia. They don't want to be waiting. They don't want the, the time to come around again for them to only be kept, be talked to in the middle of the heat of the battle. And they get that every single cycle. No one talks to them until the heat of the battle. And then they try to scare them and say, well, you're not now you have to be active because there's a problem and there's a there's a there's a real risk here. They want to be talked to all the time. And what Donald Trump is doing and what Fox News has been doing is been attacking Biden all the time. They have not waited until campaign season. They've been campaigning the entire time that, camp- that Biden has been in office. I think that. It would do, Democrats would fi- should find a way to t- to have a message that talks to voters all the time, as if it is campaign season. Mm-hmm. But, and, but but Democrats and, are not the same as the president, that singular person with a lot of jobs. Presidential words are very precious currency, and they have to be used and allocated and budgeted very carefully. Um, Fox News can blather all the time. Um, Donald Trump can blather all the time. The president has to be a little bit more careful. And and to the point about messages, I, I think one of the ways to, to think about this is is think about about starting a giant flow of rock. There are different size rocks, and they move at different points in the process for um, and the different sets of pressures. So there will be people who come out to vote in 2024 because of the abortion issue, and there will be people who will come out because of the democracy issue. There will be people who come out because the economy is actually better than they've been told. They'll all have their reasons, and they all need a, a different message. But the thing I think above all to remember is um, we can't make this story a drama about the president. It's, it's a drama about us. And when those presidential libraries say, what is the state of the democracy? You saw between 2017 and 2021 one of the biggest democratic mobilizations in the history of the United States. The turnout in 2018 was relative to the, uh, to the electorate, the highest since before the First World War, relative to the population, the highest ever in an off-year election. Now, everyone is demobilized a little bit during the Biden years. They've taken a holiday. Now they have to get back to work. But that's on them. That's not just the president's job. I'm going to get, squeeze in one more one more question here because we're, we're already out of time. But we got to talk about um, uh, Tommy Tuberville, Senator Tuberville. The Navy secretary followed up to join uh, op-ed in The Washington Post, uh, calling on Republican, calling on Tuberville to stop his ongoing blockade of military promotions. Um, here's what um, Senator Tuberville, how he responded. Right now, we are so woke in the military, we're losing recruits right and left. Uh, Secretary Del Toro over the Navy, he needs to get to building ships, he needs to get to recruiting, and he needs to get wokeness out of our Navy. We've got people doing poems on aircraft carriers over the loudspeaker. Charles, poems over the loudspeaker on aircraft carriers? One thing that I think that, that viewers should always remember, when you ever hear one of these politicians say they are anti-woke, what they are really saying is, how dare you be out of the closet? And how dare you be out of the shadows? This is simply about saying to people who are marginalized, how dare you have raised your head 
and now we want you to go back into the places where you used to hide. Uh, they are saying they, they try to make wokeness either uh, silly or a distraction or at worst destructive. But at the end of the day, they're basically saying, wind back the clock to the time where we did not see you and you did not have voice and you did not have power. Always replace this anti-wokeness with that idea. And with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Charles Blow, David Frum, thank you both very much for coming to The Readout. Coming up next, Trump's presidential bid faces a new legal challenge as a group of Colorado voters file a lawsuit arguing that the 14th Amendment disqualifies him from being on the ballot. Colorado's Secretary of State joins me next to respond. We'll be right back. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. There is a legal theory arguing that Donald Trump is constitutionally disqualified from running for president on grounds that it would violate the 14th Amendment. It's based on a little-known provision that bars people who have engaged in an insurrection from holding government office. It, it isn't just legal scholars kicking this theory around, but also elected officials like Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, who told Politico there have been conversations among other secretaries as well. The issue has intensified in Griswold State, where the group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington filed a lawsuit on behalf of the six voters, four Republicans and two unaffiliated, seeking to remove Trump from the ballot in that state because of his role in the insurrection on January 6th. Joining me now is Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, who also chairs the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State. Secretary Griswold, thank you for being here. The group seeking to remove Trump from the ballot declares that it would be improper and a breach or neglect of duty for you as secretary of state to allow his name to appear on any future primary or general election ballots. Talk about the lawsuit and how you plan to address it. Well, first, thank you for having me on. It's always great to see you. Uh, and what we are facing is a lawsuit alleging that Donald Trump is disqualified from the Colorado ballot for inciting the insurrection and trying to steal the election in 2020 from the American people. Now, this is a somewhat novel issue, but there is a provision of the Constitution, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that clearly states that when someone swears to uphold the Constitution, they are disqualified from office if they engage in insurrection or rebellion or comfort or aid the enemies of the Constitution. So the lawsuit is based on that provision. There is a lot of questions of exactly how that provision works. And that's why I'm so glad to see, uh, uh, honestly, a lawsuit filed because a court needs to weigh in. 
You know, Secretary, the 14th Amendment has been publicly has been discussed publicly for a while. But this is a challenge officially filed against Trump. Um, it's also voters who initiated the suit. Um, that that doesn't fit the profile. Well, the the, the he calls them Trump calls them um, radical left communists. These are the people who Trump's claiming who are behind these charges. But the folks who are bringing um, bringing suit or not bringing suit, but the, some of the legal scholars who are pushing this, they're from the Federalist Society. These are conservatives. These aren't radical left communists, right? That's right. And we all know that President Trump is a liar. The voters who brought this suit are Republican and unaffiliated voters. Uh, these are the people who brought this suit. And I think it's an important uh, lawsuit that hopefully will add clarity to election officials all across the nation. There are some things that are very unclear about how the, the uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is enforced. So, for example, if someone is disqualified, are they barred from running for office or just being seated in office? Who gets to make those decisions? How does Colorado law uh, execute the Constitution? These are all really big questions. Um, but to, to the, the point of Donald Trump exaggerates and lies, there's a, a bigger issue that is the basis of the lawsuit. He incited the insurrection and tried to steal the election from the American people. There's a lot of questions about if that affects his ballot access, and that's something that I hope a court will decide and provide guidance to secretaries of state all across the nation, but specifically in the state of Colorado, uh, in, in particular as how that U.S. Co constitutional provision relates to Colorado law. Mm -hmm. Um, Secretary, what are, are other secretaries of state saying about the 14th Amendment question? Is there unanimity, unanimity of agreement or is there some dissension, particularly among maybe um, fellow Democrats? Well, only a handful of secretaries of state have made comments so far. I think maybe five that I'm aware of. Um, but I, I think that the bigger picture is that this litigation, this lawsuit may play out over various parts of the presidential election. And for your viewers, uh, just know that this may not be resolved before the primary. This lawsuit may be brought again if Trump is the nominee. It may be brought again if he wins the presidential election. But no, this is just one lever, one variable that will affect the 2024 election. And what gives me a lot of hope through all of the situation, the attack on democracy, is that Americans themselves will have the opportunity to choose between democracy and chaos yet again. Mm. And they have been deciding uh, to choose democracy over and over and over in recent times. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, thank you very much for coming to the readout. And coming up, we all know America is plagued by a resurgence of white supremacy, but a new book by Robert P. Jones reveals that it's actually more deeply entrenched in our history than you might think. Joy Reid's recent interview with Jones is up next. The recent racist violence in Jacksonville, Florida, tragically showed the poisonous fruit of white supremacy in America as three black people were murdered at a Dollar General store by a white supremacist shooter motivated by what officials called a disgusting ideology of hate. 
The senseless violence in Jacksonville comes during a nationwide assault on teaching black history, especially in Ron DeSantis' Florida, where his regime has dictated students must learn that some black people gained benefits from slavery and blocked access to advanced placement African-American studies classes. Similarly, Sarah Huckabee Sanders administration in Arkansas says AP African-American studies will no longer be recognized for course credit by the state. Attempts like these to whitewash America's history are aimed directly at efforts to highlight a new start date for the American project, like Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project. A new book by Robert P. Jones spells out how the roots of white supremacy in America extend even deeper to a little-known 15th-century Catholic Church doctrine. And I'm joined now by Robert Jones, the president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and the author of The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Robbie, it's so good to see you. Oh, so good to be here. I want to congratulate you on the book. Here it is. Thank here is you. my copy. Um, and I want you to start by just explaining to us the doctrine of discovery, mm. which features a lot in the start of the book. Well, I should say that this is something actually fairly new to me, right? So I have a PhD in religion, uh, studied a lot of uh, American religious history, and this idea of the doctrine of discovery was fairly new. So what it is, is it's a set of 15th century Christian doctrines that were designed to answer the problem of what do we do with all these people we've just encountered in these lands that we didn't know about, right, right. in the 1400s. And so who do they, who do the uh, Christian princes uh, and queens and kings appeal to but the head of the Christian church. And this is, I should say, um, it is a Catholic doctrine, but this is before the Catholic Protestant split. So it is a Christian doctrine of all of Western Europe uh, uh, here. And so they appeal to uh, the religious authority, the Pope, and um, they get a decision about what their responsibilities are. And it basically runs like this. It says, uh, the defining uh, characteristic is whether or not these people are Christian or not. Uh, If they are not Christian and if they are not already subjugated by a Christian uh, power, then they essentially have no human rights. And it goes on to explicitly spell out that they have the right to occupy, conquer, kill, steal their goods. And then this phrase like uh, is like literally in the document, you know, something still ring in my head and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Right. This is in the document from the highest power of the Christian church uh, in, in the late uh, 1400s. And so this is what gives license in their minds to European colonizers to try to enslave indigenous people, to wipe them out if they resist in any way and to enslave Africans. That's how they do it. And still yeah. in their minds advance the interests of Christianity. Uh, that's exactly right. And it's worth remembering, this is the version of Christianity that lands on these shores and then, in fact, motivates the landing um, on these shores. And I think one of the things I've become really convinced of, and one of the reasons why I kind of the heart of this new book, is that this idea that this country is intended by God to be a promised land for European Christians is very much still with us. You have a, a, a polling number in here. And PRRI, by the way, is an exquisite poll. It's so good. And you guys have such a big sample. And it's fascinating always. Uh, and here's the question you asked. Do you agree with the statement God intended America to be a new promised land where European Christians could create a society that would be an example to the rest of the world? All Americans, only 30% say yes. Republicans, 52%. White evangelical pro- Protestants, 56%. So they are the ones who have this core belief. Yeah, that's right. So on the one hand, you can look at this poll and say, well, okay, two out of three Americans reject this idea, right? right? That this is a 
intended to be a white Christian country. Uh, however, it has captured a majority opinion in the Republican Party. So one of our two major political parties is absolutely animated, uh, you know, by this idea. And it's underwritten uh, theologically by a, a major religious group. In this How country. does the through line go from there, from a 15th century doctrine yeah. uh, to things like Wilmington, North Carolina government being overthrown, a, a reconstruction government overthrown by white supremacists or Tulsa massacre or what happened on January 6th or Jacksonville, the kind of race-based, violent attempts to overthrow governments and outright racist violence in Jacksonville. Is there a through line? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, for one thing, it's remarkable that we asked that polling question modeled on this 15th century doctrine. And we we see like it's hold on to the American public, 30 percent of Americans today. But you can see it animating uh, essentially uh, what is determined to be an, a legitimate outcome of a democratic process right. and what's an illegitimate uh, outcome. So Wilmington, right, um, legitimate uh, uh, a vote there that installs uh, a a number of African-Americans and leadership is actually one of the few mixed uh, race uh, government set up at the time and uh, whites wouldn't have it. Right. Uh, and there's a, a revolt and a, a deadly riot. This happens in Tulsa. Uh, in the book, I also uh, you know, talk about what happened in Mississippi and in places like Minnesota. Right. Yeah. Not just in the south mm-hmm. or in Oklahoma, a deep red state, but in a state that borders Canada. And so how do we how do we extricate ourselves from that? Because you have in more than 40 states right now, like 44 states or something, they have outlawed essentially teaching black history mm-hmm. or teaching the kind of honest history that you tell in this book. I mean, there's some harrowing stories in here about things that happened in the Mississippi Delta, et cetera. That kind of history is illegal to teach in places like Florida and Arkansas and Alabama. I could go on. Mm-hmm. How do we extricate ourselves from white supremacist theology when it's animating our politics and the actions of one political party, which used to be the Democrats and now it's the Republicans, when you can't even teach it in school, if they're banning it, how do we extricate ourselves? Yeah. From it? Well, and, and in Jacksonville, right, we may and be it, in a place where you can't uh, even talk about the roots, uh, the historical roots that explain the violence that right. we've just experienced uh, in, in Florida. Uh, what I'd say is to understand what's going on with this denial of history um, uh, is this sense that, um, you know, where we are in the country today, the country's changing, right? And so there is this desperate attempt, I think, by a shrinking white Christian uh, minority to really hold on, uh, because I think as the as this moment of reckoning is upon us, and we are in a moment of reckoning, the monuments are coming down, Black Lives Matter movement has affected all kinds of great change, and, and all kinds of reckoning, uh, this is the reaction to all of that progress, right? And, and, and the reaction to this truth-telling. So it, it's a cover-up. It's absolutely a cover-up, and it's in the interest of protecting um, this mythology, right, of impossible innocence uh, yeah. that, that, uh, that white Christians have always wanted to tell about ourselves, or, or white people have told with the assistance of white Christian theology. Yeah, and what I love about this is that you say that that is true, not in just the teaching of African-American history, but in essentially ignoring indigenous people and the incredible slaughter of them. And you bring that out in this book. It is a brilliant book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Robbie Jones, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Take a look at this floating barrier, a string of wrecking ball-sized buoys wrapped in razor wire and separated by serrated saw blades. Texas Governor Greg Abbott had them installed back in June to make it difficult for migrants to cross the Rio Grande from Mexico. 
In a rebuke of Abbott's overreach, a federal judge has ordered him to remove the 1,000-foot barrier by September 15th. The preliminary injunction sided with the Justice Department, which filed a lawsuit stating that Texas had no authority to install a barrier in, international wa- in an international waterway where the federal government has jurisdiction. The court also concluded that the barrier was a threat to human life. The ruling is a win for the Biden administration, which sued Texas to get the barrier removed. Abbott said the state will appeal the ruling, the latest sign of Republican states seeking to seize control of immigration from the Biden administration. And that's tonight's readout. I'll see you again this weekend on the Saturday and Sunday shows on MSNBC. Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern, Democratic Congressman Brendan Boyle of Pennsylvania joins me to discuss a looming government shutdown and threats from far-right members of Congress to hold up funding if their extreme demands are not met. And history is made in Mississippi as they elect their first out gay black person to the state legislature. We'll talk to the new state representative, Fabian Nelson. You don't want to miss it. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.